If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll uh, continue on in our study of 1 Corinthians today. And in a lot of ways, this kind of draws a certain section to a close. It's a section you actually started in chapter 8, and we'll talk about that more today, but it's about a group of people who go to idol temples, Christians who go to idol temples and worship idols there, and it kind of draws it to a conclusion today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you'll see verses 14 through 22. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is God's word. May I add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, indeed we don't want to provoke you to jealousy, but we want to, to live faithfully in you and for you. And so we ask, O oh God, that as we study this passage, you would lead us into truth and a true application. Father, that we might become the people that you call us to be. God, it takes spiritual uh, blessing to have spiritual insight. And so we ask for that even as we work through this passage now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, we are all worshipers. We're all worshipers. And, and the Bible is clear about the fact that we are all worshipers. The question is not, do you worship anything? The question that the Bible gives us is this, is what do you worship or who do you worship? We're created in, in God's image. By nature, we're worshipers. We're created to reflect things and we're created to reflect God back in worship. We, we may not worship God back. We may not do what he's created us to do, but our hearts and our minds will be captured by a vision for what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. We want that, and we're going to reflect that in whatever that we tend to hold on inside of our mind's eyes. So the first question the scripture asks is not, do you worship, but what or, or who do you worship? The second question that the scripture causes us to ask is, how does your worship shape you? As how does your worship shape you. One author has written, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. Because what you worship will shape your life in a very powerful way. Let's think about sports and, and singing, particularly sports and singing. You know, we have this show, it was, called, it was called American Idol, holding up singers, and, and the idea was you know, if we have these idols, things that we love, that, that maybe we someday could be a famous idol as well, a famous singer. 
Anybody could do that, right? Everybody could audition to potentially be that person and get a career. Or even in sports, you know, we see, you know, athletic wear and, and, and sports paraphernalia, which, which draw people to want to become like this other person. How many people worship a vision of success and they devote themselves to professional sports or to singing as an example? Worship is powerful because we become like what we worship. We want to look at how our worship shapes us. So when the Apostle Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a specific issue inside of the church. He didn't just write it for them, though. He wrote it for us, who these things go down through the ages. So again, the letter of 1 Corinthians was a letter written to a young church. They were probably about three years old at this point. They existed in modern-day Greece. And one of the issues that he deals with in the letter is how Christians were attending um, meals at idol temples, at temples of, of, of idols and false gods. In an ancient city like, like uh, Corinth, um, there were many temples through city limits, temples that were dedicated to you know, that Greek uh, pantheon. Corinth, I, I hear, reportedly had a temple especially to Aphrodite, a, a goddess of, of love, of beauty, of procreation. The temple to Apollo for truth and healing and, and, and Poseidon, the sea, storm, earthquakes, and horses. So they have these temples around. And, and ordinary life for, especially those who were, um, you know, at least had provision for them, maybe what we think of as a middle or upper class people, it certainly included dinners at these temples. It was just part of community life. It was a place to gather together with friends. It was a place to do business together. Now, the problem, why Paul's addressing this, is that participation in this kind of cer- this ceremony, this dinner, was contrary to the Christian faith. We saw one reason in 1 Corinthians 6, if you reflect all the way back there, because after the meals were over, they would often offer temple prostitutes to those who visited. But the current section deals with another problem. Starting in chapter 8 all the way to today, we, or to this passage today, we see this issue of um, the dinners and the ceremonies that were part of those dinners. These are the two reasons why the Apostle Paul says don't go to them. He's been saying it for years, but still they go. How do they justify it? Going all the way back to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, we see the way they justified it in saying something like, an idol has no existence. They say there is no God but one God. So in other words, they would justify their behavior by saying, basically, Paul, you've taught us there aren't so such things as these false gods. We understand there is just one true God who's revealed himself in Christ, so we should be able to go to the temples, right? You know, so what if the priest makes a sacrifice? So what if a, if a prayer is offered to these idols? Who cares that if we eat a meal? Because we know that that religious part is, is meaningless. It's just a dinner. There's no spiritual reality to the idol, and why do you even care? Plus, our friendships and our business livelihood depends on it. Now, we don't have idol temples that are surrounding us like they did. I mean, there are many countries um, that do have that. But still, I, as I was just reflecting on this passage, even in our own culture, we can have a very similar view as they did. Our culture is very secular. 
repeatedly told the only things that matter are material things, things that we can feel, see, touch, taste. The world tells us there's no spiritual realm. Maybe it's part of our imagination or part of our emotions, emotional reaction. And most of our world around us lives that way, and, and a lot of Christians can even live that way. We can have a cavalier attitude towards this life. People saying, what's the big deal? I should be able to do what I want. Other people are doing it. It, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. I can do it. It doesn't affect my faith, so why can't I just keep doing it? So this Corinthian attitude was one that many take in our world. Maybe not being very different than us. They were really becoming good secularists. Yes, they may have dismissed the gods of old. They may have professed faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, but they were failing to see how spiritual the world they lived in really was. Because Jesus didn't come to make them less spiritual. He came to make them less superstitious, maybe, but he spoke of a deeply spiritual world. The way, the way they denied the power of these idols and these gods actually left them practical, op- left them open to a practical atheism because they denied the spiritual and they lived for the material. So we may not have idols around us, idol temples around us, like those physical statues, but it doesn't mean that we don't have idols. The great reformer Martin Luther described idols for modern people when he said this, he says, an idol is whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. He's saying that we worship what we ultimately trust. Ultimate trust is worship. Whether we trust that thing for happiness or security or whatever. And so like the show American Idol, uh, we see that, idol, that idols can be people that we want to be like. There's other things that would be described as idols of the heart. Things that we look to to provide meaning for our lives, purpose, sense of direction, identity. Anything that we look at to take those things from that is an idol. It replaces the place of God in our lives. And, and just like the ancient people may have worshipped idols belong to other gods, we can have our own idols of the heart which drive our lives. may not be statues, but they can be even more powerful. Really, the Corinthians probably weren't attending these because of the statue itself, but because of the promise that was connected with those idols. Romance, power, security, control. That's what they wanted. Those are the idols, those are the the passions, the idols that truly drove them to worship these gods and to be part of these dinners. And so we can serve an idol of romantic love. We can serve an idol of pleasure, of money, of acceptance, power, control. And the thought is that if we do a good job controlling that idol and serving it, then it will give us what we want and make us happy people. But it doesn't work like that, and that's where verse 14 comes in. 1 Corinthians ten fourteen, The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. Verse 15, he says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So notice his command. His command is this, to flee from idolatry. Just last week, we looked at verse 13. 
In verse 13, if you just look there real quick, you see that in temptation, God provides a way of escape. And, and in this verse, he's saying, all right, just last verse, I told you there'd be a way of escape in temptation. Now I'm saying, take it, run, exit, leave. Don't stop, don't slow down, don't look back, just get out. He uses this language other times in the Bible. He uses it when he talks about uh, sexual immorality. He says, flee sexual immorality. Don't play with it. Don't try to resist it. Don't minimize it. Just leave as fast as you can. Get away. And it's the same truth that we need because we live in a spiritual world. And, and the reality of our spiritual world can be an enormous blessing to us where we enjoy the goodness of God, but it can also be dangerous if we tap into what's spiritually destructive. And so today we want to look at that, the power of that spiritual world. We'll look at the power of that worship. Three truths here. The first truth of worship that we see, three truths of worship. The first truth of worship is this, is that true spirituality is communion with Christ. Ever since chapter 8, uh, we've been reading Paul's argument um, to stop eating at these meals. This is, the, this is like his final argument with it. Next week is like an epilogue. It's like the postscript to this whole, but this is his, his final exhortation on this issue. It's given all kinds of reasons. But you look at how he uses to kind of put a, you know, what do you got? Put a nail in it or just finalize the whole argument? He talks about the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper shows us what spiritual reality looks like. We can see it in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? See, this passage is about the wonder of the Lord's Supper. What is it that we're doing in the Lord's Supper? Notice what he calls the cup. He calls it the cup of blessing. And then he, he says that as we uh, partake of it, we are participating. There's a participation in the blood of Christ. And eating the bread is a participation in the body of Christ. Participation is the big idea here, right? It's really the theme of this whole section. The word participation comes from the Greek word koinonia. Sometimes we use that to describe fellowship. We see how deep the fellowship is because there's a solidarity that comes between the believer and Jesus Christ. It's a solidarity that God makes with his son. You know, as we reflect on this passage, we, we see what we're doing every time we go to the Lord's Supper. We're, 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 we're gaining the benefits. We're gaining the blessings of Christ. We're participating in all that he has done as we eat and as we drink of the Lord's Supper each week. And, and we had to reschedule this sermon for today. I was hoping it would be on a Lord's Supper Sunday, which it's not, but I hope you'll be hungry for next week, because we'll be doing it next week, so we'll kind of bring this to mind. So the Lord's Supper, it's a fellowship with God. It's a true fellowship with God. It's not created by our own imagination. It's not established by men, but it is established by God in the death and the resurrection of his Son. Jesus Christ himself instituted. That's why we call it a sacrament, because he is the one who set it up. The cup of blessing that he refers to here is a reference to the last cup of the Jewish feast of Passover. As Jesus partook of the Last Supper, um, he got to this last cup of the supper, and he established a covenant with his people. That's the cup of blessing, this, this cup which established a covenant, established a relationship that he made through his own death 
upon the cross by shedding his own blood. And I hope you have that relationship. I hope you know the Lord Jesus Christ who can forgive your sins. It's a relationship with God that we have, personal relationship with him, which is established on his promise and his work on the cross. Hope you have that. It's part of that cup of blessing. Now notice, if you look down at verse 21 really quick, you'll notice that this relationship with God centers around a table. It doesn't center around an altar. Other religions say that if, uh, that if you make enough sacrifices, well then God will love you. But what the scripture says, we see especially in verse 21, is that you're invited to come to Jesus' table. Because it's already been laid. It's already been set out. The sacrifice has already been made. His death on the cross is an atonement for your sins. He's done it all so you don't have to do anything. But, but come. He loves you because of what he did. He's already made the sacrifice. You come to him by faith. We call it a, a, a fellowship meal. Because it's a time of intimacy. It's a time of joy with God. It's one that we enjoy by faith. The fellowship meal because it's one that Jesus Christ is present at. He's the host. He invites all of his people to come in, come in and participate in this meal. And so we know that when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we participate in a deep intimacy with Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that the power of a meal? I've read studies that show that children um, benefit greatly for every meal that they have with their parents in a week. You know, the two is better than one, three is better than two, four is better than three, on and on. That Seven is even Meals a week is much better than six. You know, it's just that power of identity, power of fellowship, the power of, of participation in a family makes a huge difference. We get that participation with Jesus. Meals together show solidarity with another person. That's why if a wife sees her husband eating dinner with another woman, she'd be right to be jealous. There's a togetherness that's implied just by the meal together just by something seemingly as mundane as food. There's a togetherness which is spoken in it. So when Jesus invites us to his table, he's inviting us to something powerful. And so Paul, when he says, flee idolatry, before he gets the problems, he shows them the wonderful, joyful, spiritual fellowship that they have with Jesus Christ. Jesus himself in John 6.53 said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. The idea is that he does give life. Partake, believe in him. We find life. The life that comes from him. And he reminds us of that life that we have every time we participate in the Lord's Supper. Every time even we hear the, the word preached. Because he pours that life into us. So we see this means for our, what this means for our relationship with God, but what about our relationship with one another? Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So it shows us the horizontal aspect of the Lord's Supper. We've seen the vertical, right? That's that relation with God is established. But what about the horizontal part? What about one another? Because as we participate in the body of Christ, we have fellowship with one another. The communion is with God, but it's also with each other. We're bound to each other through Jesus Christ. It's seen in the fact that we eat together. We have that solidarity together. 
That's what Jesus does. He brings us into one body. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to show us how he brings us to one body together. For just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. So every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we affirm another spiritual reality. That God has brought his people together into one body, uh, no matter what. Um, it's, it's his family, it's his kingdom, they're dwelling together for all eternity. And you can see how important that is for understanding identity, understanding purpose. Jesus is the one who came in to pay the penalty for sin. He reconciled us to God. He gave us eternal life. And, and once we know those things, that's going to make a massive difference in how we build our identity. Because it's, it's not built on our ethnic background. It's not built on our biological sex. It's not built on our net worth or the place that we live. It is built upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so when we see this, we stop seeing ourselves as merely individuals with no connection with one another, but we see ourselves in connection with other people, others who also form their identity in Jesus Christ and their relationship with him. And that we see our relationship to love each other and our call. One reason that the Corinthians should stop going to the idol temples is because of how it affects the whole group. It's also the reason that every one of us should flee temptation. Because it does affect us. It affects the body of Christ. It affects our families. So this is true spirituality. This is what God has established himself. It's built by him. It's not built by man. It's built on the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so much of the spirituality of our age is man-made. Sec- secular spirituality is man-made. It doesn't have the power of God. It doesn't have the power of real life. But the one that is given from God does result in life. All right, so... True spirituality is communion with Christ. The second thing we want to see about the power of worship is that the world is spiritual. The world is spiritual. Looking at verse 18, we see a lot about the nature of worship, especially we learn from Israel's past. Look at verse 18, it says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices participants in the idol? Or participants in the altar? So what, what is this about? Um, I mean, it seems pretty strange, right? Because we might not think about what happens to a sacrifice after it's made, right? A sacrifice is a sacrifice. And once you make a sacrifice, it's gone, right? But here we see that there's a a participation in the altar. What he's saying here is that not only would the Old Testament priests sometimes take the food that was sacrificed by by the worshipers, they said sometimes the people of Israel would come and bring a sacrifice, and then guess what? They would also bring it away from the altar together. They'd actually enjoy a meal together with some of those grain offerings that were brought. We can see it in a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 14, 22 through 27. They're partaking in the very sacrifice that they, that they make. They'd be able to enjoy those parts of the sacrifice together. Usually it was in grain offerings at this point, not the animal ones. But it makes you wonder, is it really a sacrifice if you get to uh, enjoy it after you sacrifice it? It is if we see that God designed it so that it could be used for the sake of community. Hopefully we see our tithes and our offerings. It's a sacrifice, but man, we get to enjoy that in this church and the building and the ministries that take place here. Reaching the world, but still a sacrifice. I know that so many make. 
And so in verse 19, then he goes and he shows the, how this connects with the issue he's dealing with about the idol worship, the idol, the dinners at the idol temples. Verse 19, he says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. So remember some of the brand new believers, they, they'd say, well, because the idol, the, the God behind the idol is false, uh, whatever that somebody didn't worship, you know, prayers that idol really meant nothing. point of this passage is that just because the God is false doesn't mean that the religious ceremony is insignificant. It can still be very significant. And in verse 20, he shows what that spiritual significance is. And it's demonic. It's demonic significance. Verse 20 says, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So, instead, so our world is not a world where we have competing gods who kind of all have their little section of the world and they're kind of maybe arguing with each other but ruling the world and this one has this power, this one has this power, this one has this power. We know that. We know there's one God who rules and reigns over all the world. But it also describes a world where there is a demonic realm which is under that. Under the sovereignty of God, there is this demonic realm of evil with demons who are jealous for the praise and the worship and the glory that are given to God. And the goal in that demonic realm and the goal of the devil itself, himself is to steal away the glory of God for himself. He's jealous of it, wants to take it away. And, and people, when they worship idols, they're participants in these demons. He takes this from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 through 17 where we see that these false so-called gods are truly not gods, but they're demons. And he's speaking about the event which happened in Exodus 32, where they created these golden calves while Moses was on the mountain. It says in Deuteronomy 32, 16, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your father had never dreaded. They sacrificed to demons. There were no gods. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible calls these demons seducing spirits or, or deceitful spirits. The goal of the demonic realm is to seduce, to keep people away from the truth, to keep people away from the beauty of God, the goodness, the love of God by offering cheap artificial alternatives. It's as if the world says, You'll be happy if you have these. Is it money? Is it sex? Is it power? Control? Romance? Good looks? Worldly success? And it goes with the lie. The lie is it doesn't matter who you hurt, who you sacrifice, what you have to give up yourself as long as you can have that. Now we want people to know Jesus Because these are false gods, uh, and they're also spiritual forces of evil that lead people into destruction. Those are forces that want to destroy others. They want to steal away the glory of God. But Jesus came, he says, to give abundant life. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, he says. He wants you to know the Lord. He wants you to know the joy of the Lord and know what it is to be truly be free. Not controlled by addictions, not controlled by the passions of your heart. But to worship these idols takes something away from their worship of Christ, and that's where his warning is. 
Because it says in verse 20 that joining these meals at the temples is a participation with the demons. See that word again? Participation. In other words, joining in at the idol temples actually connected people with demonic spirits. Not false gods, but demons. It connected with them with things that were against God. Would uh, you want to participate in things that are evil? No. That's our response. We don't want to participate in those evil things. So we may not be surrounded by physical temples or statues of idols, but we are part of a spiritual world, even though we live in a world that tells us that the spiritual things don't matter. As much as the people around us want to speak about this as a, as a secular place without spiritual forces, it's, the scripture is clear. The world is spiritual, and we feel it too. There's a hunger in our soul for the spiritual, for truth, for goodness, for beauty, for wonder, for that spark. There's also a sense of deployment for that which is evil. It's all a picture of this cosmic battle that's going on. Overall, we see God ruling through his word, Under him, there's a devil with a whole demonic realm that wants to deceive people. And who would choose? The Corinthians were participating in the Lord's Supper on Sunday and going to the temples to eat on Monday. But that wasn't a harmless event. The evil was real, and they cannot arrogantly dabble with it. And that same sort of thing happens today. Even as we grow more secular, it's strange that we become more cavalier about spiritual things. The more secular we become, I don't know if you notice, I do, the more palm readers that seem to be around, the more fortune tellers that we might see on our streets. Spirituality doesn't go in a a secular world that just becomes more hidden and becomes more departed from the truth of God's word. For example of it is the opening prayer at this year's House of Representatives. Added the chaplain, opened the session with a prayer and closed with the words, all men and all women. Now, the, the, the prayer itself contoned all kinds of godless things, but it's the ending of it which really captures our attention. That's what's captured the headlines. You've probably heard of it. And it seems silly on the outside. It's a thorough misunderstanding of Hebrew, what all men means. <laughs> it's not about males. About what liturgy is, or really anything meaningful. But it also shows how our national leaders are willing to dabble in idolatry, thinking that it is harmless and not a big deal. I think it's very ironic that a couple days later, a man with a bison hat and a painted face would also walk into that podium. One of the funniest memes I saw coming out of the Capitol riots showed a man, showed one picture of this chaplain who ends the prayer, all men and all women. The next picture in the meme, 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 shows the man in the bison helmet standing there with this caption which says, Behold, who has summoned me from the depths of the earth? You know, you just see the connection of this prayer with what happened there. You know, it is our connection. These things, because they are disconnected from the truth of God's word, they're not pointless, they're not simply inclusive, they are intended to bring about another kind of religion. But they're not harmless. They're not something to play with. The world is spiritual. The demonic realm is real. It is here that God speaks with authority into our lives. 
So what do you need to remember about the power of worship? First, true spirituality is communion with Christ. Secondly, the world is spiritual. And third, that worship is exclusive. That this third section here, sorry, in verse 21, it shows that the mixture of these two realms is impossible. In other words, one will crowd out the other. One will push out the other. God makes an exclusive claim upon our life, upon our allegiance, but the demonic realm also makes an exclusive claim. 1 Corinthians 10.21 says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Notice he says that we cannot do both these things at the same time. One, again, will push out the other. Either the love of God and communion for him will push out our love for what's evil, or our love for what's opposed from God will push out our love for what God says is good. They're incompatible things. Paul warns them about that reality. Jesus also warned them about the reality. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus makes this point that we cannot love both God and money. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's talk about this idol of money. Maybe we use money for security. Maybe we use it for identity. Maybe we use it to control others. Maybe we use it to get pleasure. But if we use money to get things that should just come from God, we miss out on God. It becomes an idol. One drives out the other. If you look at 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16, it shows us another passage of one driving out the other because there's no fellowship between the good and the evil because the priorities are so different. Look at verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For partnership is righteousness with lawlessness. Or what fellowship is light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? If we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, we see the priority that God gives on this. Because how we worship affects the way we think. And the way that we think affects what we love. And the way that we love affects the people that we're with and the effect that we have on them. You become what you worship. You become what you love. That's why God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Again, he's not talking about priorities. He's not saying you should have no other God that's a bigger priority than me. But he says you should have no other gods before me. And it was before my face. And where's his face? It's everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. No other gods at all. God cares about how you worship because unless you know the freedom of worshiping him, you will be in bondage to something else. Jesus makes this exclusive claim when he speaks in John fourteen six, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. We see this exclusive claim because the mixture just doesn't work. It doesn't happen. One will crowd out the other. Now, I don't want to skip verse 22 and what it says there. Verse 22 says the participation in this idolatrous kind of worship, provokes God to jealousy. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy, verse 22 says, are we stronger than he? God's our creator. God is our redeemer. He is committed to our good. He is committed to love. And that is why he gets jealous when our hearts are drawn to the idols of this world. When we go after money or sex or approval or power, not only do we rob God of the glory that he is due, but we also rush headlong into destructive 
behaviors. God is rightfully jealous. God is rightfully jealous because he truly knows the only one who can satisfy our hearts. Why is our jealousy sometimes wrong? Is because we might think that you know, we're the only person who can satisfy another person's heart. I mean, that's a wrong kind of jealousy. But, but God knows. He created us. He knows that he's the only one who can truly satisfy our hearts. And that's why it is a, a godly jealousy. There's a godly jealousy that can exist uh, when we know that this relationship is good for both people because it's based on a shared promise together. That's sort of a good godly jealousy that can exist. We can fail at this, but God is able to be lovingly jealous of us because he knows that relationship is best. Many people uh, have a difficulty with God's jealousy. And if you do, it's important to see his love in this. I mean, sometimes the way that others have treated us and the way that people have been jealous and controlling inside of our lives, you know, we believe this lie about God's love and, and, and God's law, and we could think that God is controlling, but, but we remember the Scripture shows his love, his, his jealous love. So why do you keep parts of your life away from Christ? Why do you refuse to trust him in every part of your life? Why do you keep hanging on to these things that will never give you hope? The Bible often describes idolatry as a spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Like cheating on God. God says, I love you. I've done everything for you. I've sent my son to give you life. I've provided you with everything you need. Do you think you can find it anywhere else? You can't. Come to me. God is jealous because he has a vision to make you into what he created you to be. He has a purpose to make you into what he's redeemed you to be. He's jealous to see Jesus Christ formed in you. He's jealous to see you displaying a love for God and a love for your neighbor, which bears testimony to his love, bears testimony to his redemptive plan. We become what we worship. And the chief encouragement to you and to me in the scripture is to worship Jesus Christ. As we worship him, we become like what we worship, right? We have a great promise that we become more like him. Until gradually, in the end, we will display his glory. We worship Jesus Christ because we want to be like Jesus Christ. I want to close with the final verse, which just reminds us of this great vision. From 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We should be like him as we see him and worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look in the scripture, we have learned that we become what we worship. Nothing can be more wonderful in this world than to be more like Jesus. God, he shows your love. He shows joy peace. He shows righteousness. Oh God, to be like him. We ask you to keep us from idols. Those lies, demonic lies in our world. That you flood us with thoughts of Jesus. That you lead us into worship of Jesus. That you lead us into a fellowship with him and with one another that strengthens us and helps us to do your will. We ask you God for these things. In Jesus name. Amen.